Welcome to the Canon Church Sermon Podcast. I'm Tim Emmett, the lead pastor at Canon, and I hope that this message will help you take your next step with Jesus as he leads us from death to life, from sorrow to joy, from the world as it is to the world as it will be. Thanks for joining us. Imagine for a moment that you are standing at a bus stop uh, waiting patiently for a bus when uh, a man, a stranger, comes and stands beside you. After standing there for a moment, he turns toward you and says, the scientific name for an a-, a typical sea duck is Histrionicus Histrionicus. Now you know what was said, and you understand what it sort of means. The scientific name for an average sea duck is Histrionicus Histrionicus, but in a deeper sense, you have no idea what it means. Why is he talking to you? Why is this what he said? What are you supposed to do? What are you supposed to say in response? It could be that he's mistaken you for someone he saw at the library the other day, and you had asked him, what's the scientific name for a sea duck? And he didn't know, and now he's informing you. I looked it up, and now I know. Histrionicus Histrionicus. That's a sea duck. Or perhaps he's just come from his counselor. His counselor is helping him overcome his uh, significant social anxiety, and she's encouraged him to strike up conversations with strangers in public places. Well, what do I say, he asked, and she said to him, anything, whatever comes to mind, and you are a stranger in a public place, and he's trying to work on his social anxiety, and the first thing that came to mind is something he had read in a book, the scientific name of a seabird is Histrionicus Histrionicus. Or perhaps he's a spy and he's arranged a meeting at the bus stop and it's with someone he's never seen and the code word is the scientific name of the average sea duck is Histrionicus Histrionicus. This scenario was created uh, by a philosopher named Alistair McIntyre who was making the simple point that meaning depends on context. Like, we can know what is said, but not really know what it means unless we see the bigger picture, unless we know the context, the story in which those words, that sentence takes its place. So the question this morning is this, in what story or what story makes sense of these words of Jesus? Do not be afraid, little flock, for your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the poor. Provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out, a treasure in heaven that will never fail, where no thief comes near and no moth destroys, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. In other words, invest in the heavens. In the New Testament, in the Greek, it's almost always plural. Not invest in heaven, but invest in the heavens. Invest in the work of God in the world. Put, seek first the kingdom. Don't run after, don't pursue first food, clothing, and shelter. Instead, seek first the kingdom of God. Don't worry. It will be provided. Now, what story makes sense of those words of Jesus? When Jesus invites us not to worry, to sell possessions, to give to those who are poor, to trust that if we put God and his kingdom first, everything else will be provided. What story makes sense out of that saying, those words of Jesus, that teaching of Jesus? It could be, and many certainly have felt inside the church as well as outside the church, that the story that makes sense of these words of Jesus goes something like this. 
once upon a time. In other words, there's a deep inclination to see Jesus as a make-believe character in a make-believe story. It's a pleasant story. It's an enjoyable story, like all fairy tales. But it's not a story about real life in the real world. It's kind of a story about an ideal life in an ideal world. It comes across to many people, this teaching of Jesus and many others as well, as pleasant, as enjoyable, as a way of life that certainly would be wonderful but it's kind of like a make-believe life in a make-believe world or an ideal life in an ideal world. Sky Jathani is a pastor and author, and he's written that several years ago he was teaching a class, a Sunday school class in his church on the Sermon on the Mount, the teaching of Jesus in the Gospel according to Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7, some of the most famous teachings of Jesus in the Bible, in history, also influential, sort of, but in their first session together, they read through and listened to the entire, uh, all three chapters, the whole Sermon on the Mount. And this is where we hear Jesus say things like, love your enemies and turn the other cheek and don't worry. After they had listened to the entire Sermon on the Mount, Jathani asked, how many of you think Jesus actually expects us to live out these commands? Nobody raised their hand. Well, he pushed a little bit. Don't you think Jesus expects us and calls us to live as he teaches according to these teachings? And then people began to sort of cautiously respond. Well, you, you really can't. Actually, they weren't cautious. They were pretty aggressive. You can't live like this. No one can live like this. Well, don't you think he, he really did intend for his people to, to do what he said? He sort of says at the end of the sermon that we should hear what he says and then do it. He doesn't actually expect us to live like this. He's really just kind of showing us what the ideal is so we'll see how far we fall short and how much we need God, how much we need forgiveness. But are you really sure that he doesn't intend for us to live in this way, not to worry, to forgive, to love, to turn the other cheek? You'd be foolish to live in that way, someone finally said. It's dangerous to live in that way. Do you think Jesus was a fool to live like this? After all, it led him to the cross. What story makes sense of these teachings of Jesus when it comes to our relationship with money and possessions? With the pursuit of food, clothing, and shelter, the necessities of life, it could be, and for many it is, once upon a time. It's a sort of make-believe life in a make-believe world. It's not the real world. But I want to suggest to you this morning that the story that makes sense of this teaching of Jesus, like all the other teachings of Jesus, does not begin once upon a time. Instead, it begins, the kingdom of God has come near. In other words, the God who created all things 
has come to us as one of us, has acted and is acting to redeem, restore, renew the world through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Jesus preached the gospel of the kingdom, the good news that God's kingdom had come near. The train was pulling into the station. God's power to set right and heal the whole world had come near and was here and is here through Jesus. Something has happened, is happening, will happen. Heaven has come here. And to help them and us open our eyes and our hearts, our lives and our hands to this kingdom of God, this new way of being together with God in the world, Jesus said and says, consider the ravens. And I think he actually meant that we should stop every once in a while and consider the birds. Don't just look at the birds, consider the birds and the wildflowers in the field. And see in the world around us the providence of God, the good governance of God, God's passion and love for us to live. It's easy to believe that we live in a world marked fundamentally by scarcity and hostility. Jesus invites us instead to live in the kingdom in a world fundamentally marked by abundance and providence. It is tempting to believe and to live, easy to live and believe that we live in a world marked fundamentally by scarcity and hostility. There's not enough. That's scarcity. That's actually the fundamental assumption of our entire economic way of life. There's not enough. And certainly it is true that there are not enough iPhones to go around. And it also is true that there aren't enough Porsches to go around. We can't all have one of them. But is it really true that there's not enough food? That there's not enough water? That there's not enough sunlight? Is it really true that God created a world in which scarcity is a fundamental, unavoidable fact of life? There's not enough. Some will have and others will not. scarcity, and then, of course, hostility. Because if we believe we live in a world where we are basically alone and on our own, it's just us and our tribe against everyone else, the war of all against all for scarce resources, then not only will we be anxious constantly because there's not enough to go around. We know there's not enough to go around, but we, me and my tribe, can't trust you and your tribe. More wars have been fought in human history over water, access to water, than anything else. Jesus lived in a world that was constantly at war. He was not ignorant of reality. He was faced with reality, up close with reality, every day, far more than we are. It was a subsistence economy. People lived hand to mouth. Droughts were real. Plagues were real. He was not naive. He was not unaware. He didn't live in a bubble. And yet, 
in a world where most of his neighbors did believe in scarcity and hostility as fundamental, unavoidable facts of life, he preached and embodied a whole other way of being in the world. A whole other way of viewing the world. Abundance and providence. There's enough. Look at the birds. Consider the lilies. You know, it's been pointed out that birds don't do nothing. They actually are quite active, right? They don't sit around waiting for food to fall out of the sky. They're active, often active, but never worried. What story gives meaning to the words of Jesus, don't worry? Seek first the kingdom. Pursue the kingdom. Put that first and everything else will be added, provided along as well. It is not, I believe, once upon a time, but instead the kingdom of God has come near. By God's grace, we live, are invited to live with eyes, hearts, lives, hands wide open to a world marked by abundance and providence. God has provided. Therefore, we are free not to worry and to hoard, but to trust and to share. We are free to invest in the heavens, free to invest in God's work in the world, to be grateful and generous, to give and to share. Therefore, when on this fourth Sunday in our series on five simple ways to have a great year, when on this Sunday I invite you, we invite you to practice giving, yes, to the church, but to others as well. The context for that invitation is not the church has a budget and we have to pay our bills. That, of course, is true. The church does have a budget, and we do have to pay our bills. But that's not the big picture. The church has a mission. That's the big picture. We're here to preach Jesus, to celebrate the gospel, invite people to know and enter into life with Jesus, to be part of the movement that Jesus launched 2,000 years ago the movement to rescue and heal the whole world. The church has a mission. It also has a budget, and its budget supports that mission. And so this morning, as we add giving to our practices, our habits that will help us have a great year, the invitation, of course, yes, is to practice giving. But for some of us, actually, I would suggest for all of us, the place to begin is not with giving, but with gratitude. The place to begin is with gratitude. Because True contentment, true satisfaction is not found in getting what we want, but wanting what we have.
And we want what we have by practicing gratitude, by beginning the day not just with awe, giving thanks to God for who he is, but also with thanksgiving, giving thanks to God for what he has already done, what he's already given. When we realize how richly blessed we already are, it helps us experience contentment and satisfaction. Happiness is not one purchase away. It's in God and the gifts that he has already given. And so the invitation this morning in part is for each of us and all of us to practice gratitude, to spend some time at the beginning of the day, yes, counting your blessings, being grateful for the people in your life, being grateful for gifts already given. And then for others, perhaps, uh, practicing giving will involve just a commitment to give. We've never thought about making a commitment to give, making this a habit, a part of our monthly budget, something we're committed to. Something which expresses our values, what matters to us. And I believe for everyone, not just for people who are involved in this church, you may be here this morning and you're involved in some other church. Support that church, God's work in the world through that church, as well as other ministries of God beyond the walls of the local church. What we're doing when we make these investments is not just supporting a budget or participating in mission. As an expression of our belief, our conviction that the world is not first and foremost scarcity and hostility, but instead, because of Jesus' abundance and provision. And we're free to enjoy and also free to share. We are free to receive and to be grateful and then also to give. Years ago, there was a missionary in Africa by the name of Dan Crawford. He was returning from Africa to the United States uh, on one occasion, and to do so, he had to leave the inner part, the interior of Africa where he had been working, and go to the coast to catch a ship. He really did not want to make that long journey on his own, and so four of the men with whom he was in a relationship, with whom he'd been in ministry, uh, walked with him from the interior to the coast. It was a long journey. As they walked, Crawford uh, told his friends about the glories of the coast and the city they would find. He told them about the light that did not have a flame, electric lights. He told them about wagons that did not have animals, automobiles, and about storing their food so that it would not spoil, refrigeration. As he walked and talked, three of the men entered into the conversation. The fourth man, however, seemed strangely unimpressed and kept his peace. After a few days, they were sitting one evening uh, together, and Crawford was really kind of a, a little bit confused and almost kind of irritated that this one man, the fourth man, did not seem at all excited about getting to the city. And so he said to him, aren't you eager to get there? I mean, don't you want to see all of these wonderful things? The man responded, Mr. Crawford, to be better off is not to be better. be better off is not to be better. 
I'm so grateful that Jesus has shown and shows us how to be better, how to live together in love. We're better off because we live in a world of abundance and providence, and that invites us and encourages us, calls us to a life of gratitude and generosity. Let's pray together. Gracious and loving God, we give thanks that uh, Jesus, though he was rich, became poor so that in and through him we might become rich, rich in love, rich in joy, rich in peace, rich in patience, rich in kindness, rich in faithfulness, rich in goodness, rich in gratitude, rich in self-control. We give thanks that Jesus made us rich in faith, hope, and love. Help us to love as he loved. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks again for joining us. We hope that this message will help you have a great week by helping you walk in faith, hope, and love. Looking for more information about Canon? Check us out on the web at canonchurch.org or follow us on Facebook at Canon UMC and Instagram at Canon Church 2424.